Greetings and salutations, one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am excited for our guest today, my friend Steve McGowan. Um, Steve and I met, I'm going to say, about four or five months ago, and we've had a, a number of really interesting conversations. And uh, Steve actually did a great panel for us up in Toronto. Uh, you may be able to pick up when Steve talks. He has a little bit of an accent. Uh, so say hello to our audience, Steve. Oh, um, yeah, you say a little bit of an accent. That uh, I was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit. So uh, that's where I picked that up. All right. Well, I see. I think people from Detroit have accents too. So it's definitely much more pronounced. I, I, when we travel abroad, uh, people tell me I sound half American, uh, not fully American, just half American. Okay. Back to your background, because you have a, a, a great and extensive background, Steve. I think that our audience would love to hear. But as we always do on Risk and Reels, we're going to start off with a movie question. Um, so. What movie, or, or if you want, you can do a TV show. What movie or TV show sort of shows like a, the concept of a small world? So I'm, I'm quoting, I'm doing air quotes, which of course no one can see because we're only on audio. But so what, what kind of movie or TV show so, shows like a small world to you? Well, the one that comes to mind right off the bat is a fairly recent movie that came out. It's called The Billion Dollar Heist, and it's very relevant to cybersecurity. And, uh, you know, as 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 is often the case in the cybersecurity world, the threat actors that went after the bank, the national bank, uh, the central bank of Bangladesh, because they figured it was uh, maybe a softer target than some of the other central banks. Um, they went after that, but it was, it was a, a global operation. You know, it was widely believed that it was a, a, a nation state threat actor. Uh, you know, I'm going to say North Korea. I think that they've, they've determined that, but uh they managed to set it up with a perfect storm. They spent you know, a typical thing. They spent like a year plus in the environment, getting their, getting themselves settled, finding their targets and so on and so forth. And then they picked to execute. They picked a weekend where there were a multiple string of holidays in each of the countries they were passing the money through, being the Philippines, the casino system, and so on and so forth. So they worked it out. So by the time they moved the money across the globe, because, you know, it's one thing to have cyber dollars in a bank account, but to actually convert that to actual cash, they gave themselves four days by hopping across the globe and, and aligning the national holidays in each of the companies countries that they jumped to in order to give themselves the maximum amount of time to convert that to cash. And oddly enough, they, they call it the billion-dollar heist. They came amazingly close to getting the full billion dollars, which they said in Bangladesh – would have meant half the population probably would have starved to death. It would have been that severe uh, because it's one of the poorest countries on earth. But uh, oddly enough, the, the threat actors, but one o'clock in the morning, their local time went to bed because they'd been up all day and they were tired. And one of the other central banks sent an authorization request because they were questioning it. They weren't saying no, they were questioning it. And they said, can you validate this please? And if these gentlemen had not gone to bed, and answered that question, they would have gotten the full billion dollars. Uh, but because they Aye. spent six, seven, eight hours sleeping, that gave time for people to ask more questions. And then they finally went, "Hey, whoa, 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 stop!" And uh, but it was it just they just they went to bed like a half an hour too early. But 
We're talking. Uh, so, so very smart criminals and very dumb criminals all in one. I mean, they were, they obviously were very sophisticated and they've, they'd done their homework and they'd spent their time. Um, but you know, it's, it's just a, a matter of, it takes, you know, one zig instead of zag to, to trip up the whole show. Right. It's a very complex thing, but it was truly, uh, leveraging different points across the globe in order to move the money and shift it, obfuscate their activity and so on and so forth, hoping that the people in the new country weren't aware of what was going on in the previous country and so on and so forth. Um, that one, you know, right. small world because basically anybody behind a, a computer screen with the right skills can hit anyone anywhere in the world. Um, that was her. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I'm familiar with the story. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm familiar with the story. Um, and I remember that was that was a whole bit. There was a whole big push because people realized that the SWIFT network didn't really have a lot of security controls in place because it was built really before the internet was a thing, and it was on these dedicated things, and you couldn't get in. So that's so I like that. So so here now I have to get my answer. So my answer is is I think going to be a little bit strange. So there is a movie called Sinodosh New York. It was directed by Charlie Kaufman and starred uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's, I don't want to ruin it because it's, it's a great story, but it's, a, it's sort of a small world in a small world in a small world in a really big world. And it's super, super cool. And I, I'm a very big uh, uh, Hoffman fan. His, um, his, his loss, I think, was uh, catastrophic for the entertainment industry. But I highly suggest that people go check that movie out. There is literally nothing security about it, nothing technology about it. It's just a really weird sort of interesting story. So, okay. So now let's talk about cyber uh, a little bit. So, I, you know, our listeners have, have indicated they love to actually hear people's sort of career stories and, and career trajectories. And, you know, you, you, and I'm not calling you old, but you've been around a couple of 24s and you've had some pretty cool jobs. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your career pathway and, and how you got where you are now. Well, I'd say my career has played out a little bit like a ball on a pinball machine, certainly ended up in a very unexpected place compared to where I started. Um, you know, I was one of those kids, I wanted to be a pilot when I was five years old. That was my mission. I was a wing nut from birth. I was going to be around airplanes. I was going to have something to do with airplanes. And I joined the Air Force as a pilot and uh, air crew, did not make it through air crew selection. My left eye, the astigmatism in my left eye was right on, right on the edge of tolerance and uh, when you've got a lineup of guys three three miles long, all wanting that pilot's license, it does, doesn't take much to get bumped out of the line. So I ended up being what's called an avionics engineer. I wanted to, I'm, I'm a mechanical fixer dude kind of guy. And I ended up in the F-18 program, uh, living in a frozen place called Coal Lake, Alberta. It's about 800 miles north of Montana. That's our main Western fighter base. That's where my kids were born. Uh, Nobody lives there on purpose, unless you're Air Force. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of places that nobody lives on purpose. I, I grew up in Windsor, the most southern city in Canada, and I thought all of Canada was like southern Ontario. They said, yeah, you want to be on F-18s, you got to go to Coal Lake. And I went, okay. I got to Coal Lake, and I looked around, and I went, what is this? Like, I, this is not what I – I didn't I didn't realize I was a young kid. I didn't realize that 98% of Canada is empty, and half the population lives on the southern Ontario Peninsula because it's the warm part. Right. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I, bottom line is I still got to fly in F-18s, uh, fly around, blow stuff up, all the stuff I wanted to do when I was a kid. I just didn't get to do it as a pilot. I was a backseater. And uh, 
a lot of good experiences there. I, I you know, didn't really like the 50 below zero part, but uh, that's in the winter. Uh, it did have a short summer up there, but I, I did a lot of rotations up. I used to do the rotations up to Anuvik, uh, which is on the Tuktoyuktuk Peninsula in the Arctic Ocean. That's where our main, what we call the QRA, the Quick Response Area. That's where for NORAD, we coordinate with the Americans in Alaska, and when the Russians poke our airspace, that's where we scramble at them. So I used to do rotations up there. So I got to see all of the parts of Canada that most people never see and most people never want to. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I always say the Arctic is interesting once, but about the tenth time, not so much. But uh, um, you know, I love it. but it's it's probably beautiful up there. It might be somewhat desolate and cold, but it's probably beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it, parts of it. Um, parts of it are very desolate. Um, can't trust your eyes. That's the biggest thing. You can't, there's no depth perception. Pilots fly perfectly serviceable airplanes into the ground because there are no trees, there's no buildings, there's no objects. So I remember standing on the end of the flight line and thinking I could walk down to the Arctic Ocean in 10 minutes and it's 50 miles away. You can't tell visually. So it's a very dangerous place. Right. No, no, no frame of reference, nothing to benchmark against. But, uh, you know, certainly interesting. I got to, you know, travel up to Alert, the very northern tip of Canada, which is a most people don't realize that Canada is about one and a half times as high as it is wide. Uh, and Alert is right up at the very tip, uh, the closest point to, to Russia you can get. Uh, and, you know, so I've seen all these places, east coast to west coast, and one all the way. I got to see Canada. Got the fly around, blow stuff up, like I said, uh, childhood dream. But, uh, you know, you're talking about my career path. One day, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, peacekeeping tours and whatnot. And uh, one day, my daughter had a sleepover, and the father came to uh, pick up the daughter in the morning. And I was telling him how I wanted out of the Air Force because I was spending too much time away from my family and whatnot. And he said, well, let me introduce you to my boss. And two weeks later, I was running an application development team. Uh, with five people reporting to me. No idea what I was doing. Um, I, was, I had four college diplomas at that point. Not one was in IT. And uh, I just taught myself everything. Uh, I've worn every hat in the industry, VMware certified professional, DBA, Windows admin, Unix admin. Um, done quite a bit of uh, project management, architecture, all that, you know, pretty much wherever the wherever the jobs were, I followed and, and built up a pretty wide spectrum of program management, project management, architecture, you know, leading larger scale things. And until I started getting into the, you know, the Royal Banks of the world and whatnot, uh, I call, I, I say Royal Bank was definitely a big boy school. That's where the, the best and the brightest and the, the biggest tools and, and working in data science teams with PhDs and whatnot that, that really upped my game quite a bit. I actually enrolled uh I was going to take a master's degree in artificial intelligence when I was working there until I got the VP position. And that was no longer the education they wanted. They wanted the MBA. But uh, I was going down that path. I was probably going to end up doing a master's or a PhD in data science or artificial intelligence. But that was really the only education I've taken in cybersecurity. Everything else has been self-taught. Just kind of found it. I figured it out as I went along. And things have just worked out very, uh, very much in my favor. Um, you know, I'm pleased with where I've ended up. But if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would I be here? I would say no. But uh, here I am. Well, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of the old Yiddish saying: If you want to make God laugh, tell him what your plans are. And you know, just like so many people I know in cyber, nobody planned on going into that. They don't have IT degrees. I mean, my my pathway is similar. I sort of stepped from kind of one lily pad to uh, 
to another. So, all right, awesome. So, so I want to I want to shift gears a, a little bit and talk about something that you and I talked about when we first met months back, which is sort of the impact that the weird wonky economy is having on cyber, right? We talked about it before, before we started recording. Um, companies are laying people off. They're, they're downsizing. We're seeing comp drop for what are these very, very critical sort of really highly dependent roles. So what, um, what is it like to, to run a program or to have to build a program when they keep telling you, you don't have any money. There's no bodies. So like, what, how do you do that? How do you make that work? How do you protect organizations when they don't want to give you the resources or can't give you the resources? Well, I think you have to get very laser focused on, on your risk assessments and figuring out what are your top risks, you know, based on probability and impact, what's going to cost you the most amount of money and has the highest probability of happening. And then you have to look at your tool sets and whatnot and say, which problems are you solving? You know, are you a map to the MITRE attack framework? Are you really solving the problems that have the highest probability of getting you hit? Um, so that's the, you just have to, you can't afford to be, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Inefficient. Um, you know, you can't afford to, oh, I've got 20 tools and five of them are probably okay. No, you can't have that. You've got to have 10 tools that are really hitting the mark. And you know, if you're if you're being asked to cut tools back and, and whatnot and personnel back, you have to get efficient. You have to get into obviously automation. Everybody knows that one. But automation can be difficult to implement, especially when you're losing bodies. Um, there are certain solutions that I I'm warm on that I think move the needle more than others. Uh, one in particular that I've been you know have been met into lately that I think moves the needle more than others and and compensates for the loss of personnel far more than others. I mean. There are so many tools out there, and you know a lot of them overlap. A lot of them do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Maybe there's fifty percent overlap. You know, everybody's looking now for that that one magic bullet, that tool that ticks three or four boxes instead of just one. If you can sunset one or two technologies and replace it with one tool, and, and you know save hundred, two hundred k, three hundred k, while accomplishing more. Like you know, it takes more focus and scrutiny on your tool sets and what are your tool sets doing, right? Because, you know, you're, you, as, as they always say, you know, solve the process problems first, figure out what the problems are before you start buying tools for it kind of thing. Um, there's, there's, there are one or two tools that are just no-brainers, um, but everything else needs to be scrutinized very carefully. You know, what are you getting from this tool? You can't afford to spend money that you don't have to do something that's on the periphery of your main, main risks. Right. So, so I want to pull on that a little because I think there, there were some really interesting things you said there. I think one, one is around the concept, you didn't say it, but you alluded to it, which is technical debt, right? You have these tools that you invest in and they were, maybe they were the right tool at the time. Maybe it seemed like a great idea, but all these platforms start to get bloated, right? And then they all of a sudden you now have overlap. Um, have, you, have you had an experience in your career where you, you sort of had a deal with, with some technical debt, maybe coming into a role and you're looking and you're going, the program's not great, but we have all the tools. Yeah. What do you do? It goes beyond tools. Like when, when you say technical debt, it can't just be cyber technical debt. I mean, obviously IT technical debt is, is the, the ball that you're chasing too, right? And when you've got shadow IT and other such things going on in the company, it, it can be very difficult to uh, consolidate these things into one view 
and and run them properly and, and control them properly collectively. When it's like I always say, after a while, you get some of these companies, especially if you get a lot of mergers and acquisitions, you end up with a solution that looks like someone dragged a magnet through a parts bin, and uh, it can be very difficult to apply clean solutions to that that work. And that's why I say I'm, I'm there are one or two tools that I'm warm on that just remove the the, the difficulty behind that because it's. It's things like zero trust. Everybody knows, you know, you, you read Nest and whatnot, zero trust is the is the way to go, but it's very, very painful to implement and very, very painful to maintain. It's a moving target. And, you know, like you're constantly chasing your tail on this. And, you know, there are certain solutions out there that can make that much more effective and manageable and dynamic. And that's what has to happen. Things have to be dynamic. Any work you do that's static is throw away within five minutes, almost basically. Otherwise you're just creating tomorrow's technical debt, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So so you mentioned zero trust and, and zero trust has been a little bit of a bugaboo for me for, for a number of years. People talk about zero trust like it's one thing, but it's not. There's zero trust authentication, there's zero trust networking. And, and we see a big push from a lot of public entities, public sector, that zero trust, zero trust. And, and I, I think to your point, we have to know what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, when I talk to CISOs all all the time, they don't always know like what's what's the end game, what is the goal, what are we trying to accomplish, what are your what what are the measurements that 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 make you successful? And I think that's um, I think it's a challenge when you don't have the human capital. And and you said something that I think is super super spot on, which is automation takes effort takes people. So it's a bit of a, of a vicious cycle because if you put in automation, you don't need all the people, but if you don't have the people to build the automation in the first place, you, you kind of get stuck in a bit of a hamster wheel. Well, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, automation is a, is a buzzword that's used amongst the non-technical manager community quite often. They say automate, automate, automate. They don't necessarily know what it takes and how it works and why it doesn't work in some certain circumstances. Uh, we always used to say in data, data yeah. management, I saw, I shared an article one time that said data science is uh, is 10% da- data and 90% anger management or something, <laughs> because it's, you can always prefer <laughs> data sets that wind, that, they, they are really square peg in a round hole, and the, the management, the non-technical management thinks, well, just just mush it all together. And it's, it's not that simple, right? And, you know, automation, there's good automation and there's bad automation. There's automation that will just create as many problems as it solves. And if you don't have the right automation in the right place and the right people to maintain it, then you have to be careful opening up that door because you build a dependency that you can't support, right? Um, and, and the other thing too that I see is that people automate things that they don't really understand very well. So you end up building these repeatable things that are not right. Yeah, exactly. And it's... It's so it's not right. I mean, in an enterprise, nothing exists in isolation. So it might be right for one solution, but if you don't work at the enterprise level with enterprise architecture and get the holistic A to Z view, um, then you're building something that works for one part of the organization and might wreak havoc on another. And that doesn't work. If you don't have consistency across the organization, you'll you'll never you'll never win. You'll never achieve success. It's as simple as that. Right. 
So, so you said something that I really like there, which which is about the fact that nothing sits in isolation. All of these these all this connectivity in these these ecosystems that are just getting more and more complicated, and and I think that actually brings me to to a, a question that I want to throw out there. So, we look at your background, Steve. You you have. OT, IT, you you have um, you know Internet of Things, right? All of, of these things. What we've started to see is a trend, and it's slow, but I think it's building for a CISO, a CSO to own OT, to own IT, to own product security, to be a true enterprise chief security officer. So. What are you seeing now? What do you what What's new? What do you see in the future? What are some of the changes there? Because I think that that is the future. I think the 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 security role is going to continue to elevate and become more business aligned and business important. At least I I am now holding my hands in prayer that that happens. But what are you seeing? Because you know you you've been in organizations where you have OTIT, you have product, and you have to look at all of those things. So. What do you see as the future? What are some of the trends there that our listeners might be interested in hearing about? Well, one of the trends that uh, that scared uh, scared the bejesus out of me at the beginning was uh, the meshing of the, the IT and the, the OT networks. Because nowadays, for asset management and for inventory and so on and so forth, materials handling, they all want to be connected to the SAP instances, uh, you know, the, the ERP solutions, so that that all of the the raw materials and whatnot that go into the industrial process can all be tracked on the IT network. Well, of course, you're opening up Pandora's box with that. And so the ability, you know, just a standard firewall between, you know, the standard DMZ between uh, between the OT and the IT network is, is not enough. And in the, in the OT world, for those that haven't worked in the OT world, engineers, OT engineers have uh, an, an unfortunate habit of multi-homing their, their human management interfaces, their their engineering boards, their status boards to the to the corporate network so that they can see their stats from home without having to drive in and so on and so forth. And that creates a, a, a terrible security hole. So, you know, the fact that all these things are becoming, it used to be at least they, they tried to keep the... Uh, um, the OT and the IT networks separate. Quite often they weren't, um, but you know they tried. But nowadays they're trying to put them together, and that's and, and they're even going cloud, which is even more challenging. You know, you, you start connecting the OT networks to a cloud environment, and that gets that gets pretty scary because misconfiguration is your is your biggest biggest worry. Situations like a ransomware hit can can take out an entire industrial process and shut a company down effectively. And that uh, that's a situation that's that's very scary to uh, to deal with and to protect against, especially when you've got business challenges. And you know, in OT environments, the OT crew, staff, whatever you want to call them, they tend to lag pretty far behind the IT world as far as cyber awareness and risk awareness. So you really have to right. Well, for for a long time, their whole thing was security by obscurity, right? Because no one understands these, no one sees them, no one knows they're there. And now that it, to your point, now, now that we're seeing this convergence, all of a sudden we're starting to realize they, there isn't really a lot of security there. It wasn't something anyone thought about. No, I mean, uh, I actually went to college for industrial control systems. Before. I was going to college before I joined the Air Force and I, I dropped out to join when I got called for the Air Force. And I joked that everything I learned back then still applies today. I mean, a lot of this stuff was built 
on technology that really hasn't changed a whole lot. There's very, very similar. The reason I'm, I'm good at OT security is because it's, it's very, very similar to aircraft computers. Like what goes on in an F-18? It's basically an OT, it's an OT network with wings. Uh, it's, it's not entirely dissimilar at all. Um, but, uh, you know, things, you know, the technology they operate on, the, you know, a lot of the technology is updated with time. But for the most part, it's still pretty old technology. It's fairly simple stuff. And a lot of the, a lot of the, like the idea that nobody understood this, a lot of the threat actors say in Russia, uh, a lot of places like this, places like Cuba and Russia and so, so on and so forth, they operate heavily on this stuff. They understand it very well. So, you know, they want it, when they want to attack, you know, it, it depends on what kind of threat actor and what they're going after. I mean, ransomware is the obvious uh, big risk in that environment. For somebody to go after a dedicated attack, there's got to be a there's got to be a carrot dangling at the end of it for them. There's got to be a specific reason. Uh, you know, there was a steel factory in Germany that was you know the blast furnace was caused to melt down and explode, but that was you know the, the people doing this had a specific dedicated reason for doing that. Just a general. Right. I I remember I remember that because and then it took a year before people realized it was actually an IT hack that went after the, the industrial control systems there. Yeah, I remember that. That was crazy. You know, a lot of your cyber attacks are opportunistic drive-by attacks. Even malware, it's like a random, you clicked on a wrong email, we got you kind of thing. It's not, it's just not a dedicated nation state actor that's sitting down and figuring out your network with a specific target in mind. You know, a lot of OT networks, they like to hit them with uh, with ransomware because they know they have to pay. It's as simple as that, right? I mean, in an OT network, if you cause valves to open and close at the wrong time, you can overpressure tanks, things can blow up, people can die. Uh, you know, the implication, you can put a company completely out of business with a ransomware attack just by the physical damage of, of the ICS network being exposed to, to active traffic at the wrong time in the wrong place. Yeah. Right. And, and we, and we know those industries are to your point are they're behind the curve. You know, there've been numerous studies done by like in the U S by the department of energy saying like, you guys are really, really exposed. And I'm going to bet Canada's probably not that much different. No, they're not. And, and, you know, a lot of it is, you know, you get the attitude, um, you know, this is the way we've always done it. You hear a lot of that, that answer drives me crazy. You know, I don't care how you've always done it. You know, like, the bad guys love that attitude, and it just makes their job easier, right? Um, but they all—you come across the attitude a lot. Well, we've been fine to date. Why should I change now? And you know, my my answer to that is always, well, you know what? By the time you know I'm right, it's too late. Uh, you know, that's the problem in our world. Is quite often you can't see, feel, and touch what we're talking about, and everybody thinks we're just a bunch of tinfoil hat wearing crazies that are paranoid about everything. You know, until we're right. Well, that is true. That is a true statement, though. We are those people, but we do know what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I prefer to call it risk aware, uh, not paranoid, risk aware. Yeah. I, I tell people all the time, I am a professional paranoid. Like I'm the guy I walk down the street, I'm looking at shadows. I know what's going on around me. And, but they, they do, I think they do tend to think that we're, that we're over-exaggerating the, the impact of some of these things. And I think sometimes that's true. But in a lot of cases, I don't think they understand how catastrophic some of these failures could be. Well, I worked for a gold company at one point, um, and I used there was a company called Nautilus Minerals, and they started a company. This is a Canadian company out of Vancouver, and they started a company who was building machinery 
to uh, mine off the ocean floor around volcanic vents in the in the Bismarck Sea off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And they had this machinery that was adapted from undersea oil drilling, but it was designed to chew up the crust and extract very high concentrations of gold and silver and so on and so forth. Well, somebody clicked on a bad email. They got they got malware inside. They got into the the financial system and somebody prompted a transfer of $10 million and it went off in a never, never land. And I use that example. I put it up on a nice pretty PowerPoint and I show in, this is a, a company that's in the same industry, put it up on a PowerPoint and I just watched the entire board of directors standing there with their mouths open, like $10 million gone like that. Okay. I got your attention now. Right. You have to make it matter to, you have to show a relevant example. Otherwise they think, you know, why should I care? You know, it has, nothing's happened yet. Why right. should I care? Um, and, you know, you really have to make it relevant. It's the same with cybersecurity training. You have to make it relevant to that person. If you just throw generic stuff at them, they just, yeah, 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 whatever, click, click, click. Uh, until you make it hit home, like in a scenario that really sits, suits their situation, and then, then you get their attention. So, so I think I think that that's actually a great point to sort of start to wrap up, which is you you have to message in the context that people understand. You have to talk to them where they are because they're not they're never going to be experts like we are. So, okay. So, first of all, Steve, I want to thank you. This has been a great conversation. I have a couple of sort of key takeaways that that I came, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it back to you for any final thoughts. So, first. Automation is good, but you have to make sure you understand what you're automating and be cognizant to the fact that if you are not maintaining your automation, it will fall apart, right? Chaos theory. Things devolve to chaos. Um, second thing is take a look at your technical debt, not just in cyber, but all across the organization. The older that stuff gets, the more exposure we have. Um, Zero trust might be useful, but it's really hard, which is a very obvious one that I don't think a lot of people think about. Um, and then I think your thought about the fact that a lot of attacks are opportunistic, I think is important. Sure, there are plenty of targeted attacks out there, but I think you're spot on in that most of these things are the attackers throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what, what sticks. And then I'm a big fan of, of like, we have to stop doing the things we've always done. Uh, there are famous stories. I actually posted something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about uh, the ham story, and we don't have enough time to tell it. But again, the punchline is, well, we've always done it that way, and there's no reason. So so I think great, great, yeah, great, great thing to take away. So Steve, any final closing thoughts for our audience before we go our separate ways? No, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging time to be a CISO, uh, you know, especially in the, in the days with SolarWinds and Tim Brown and whatnot. Um, you know, CISOs are being held accountable. They're being, you know, let's face it, with SolarWinds, uh, the shareholders showed up on the front lawn with pitchforks when, uh, when they thought the CISO had overstated their, uh, their security. That, that's, uh, that puts a, a whole other layer of, of liability and accountability on the CISOs. And, you know, as a CISO, we're, we're business leaders as much as we're a technical leader. So this puts us in a difficult situation where we have to enable the business, we have to protect revenue, but we also have to protect ourselves from shareholders and so on and so forth. Quite often we found that, you know, one of the things I discovered in my previous role was that, uh, you know, I didn't discover, it's one of the things you wouldn't have thought of, but people are starting to think of it now, is that a CISO is not traditionally an officer of the company, which means you're not covered under directors and officers insurance 
which means when the trolls right. come after you, it's you, right? So that's that's right. that's quite a, a scary real, realization for a lot of CISOs. Yeah. I, hopefully, I think that's going to start to change. I think the SEC regulation in the U.S. I think is going to push that because I don't think CISOs are going to step into that breach without that coverage. But I, I think yeah. that's an things, excellent, things excellent point. Yeah. Things are evolving, and and you know they they stop short with the last iteration of demanding somebody with with cyber experience on the board. But you know, oh, do, we don't have enough time. Don't get me started. That is a big bugaboo of mine, yeah. Steve. I am telling anyone who's listening that was the biggest mistake that that they made, and yeah, I, I, I think, think we are like uh, in violent agreement. Complex, right? But I think they're they're going there. But the fact is, it's not enough to have one cyber aware person on the board. They're really business leaders. They care about making money, and. You know, when the when the cyber guy is in there saying you got to spend this money or you might not make money, and they're thinking, well, if I do make, do spend that money, I'm not definitely not going to make money. Why should I? So quite often the CISO is put in a position where, um, you know, it's tough to get the support to do the right thing because you know it, it interferes with business objectives and so on and so forth. So you really have to. I I, I talk about. I don't want to drag on too long, but I talk about uh, translating. You really, you really have to learn, you know, until my jobs, I've reported to the CFO. And at first I thought I was being punished by God reporting to an accountant, but it really uh, taught me a lot about translating and speaking their language. And that becomes especially yep. critical. You really need to learn how to do that. And that's where the, I would say risk management is the, the language by which security people get money. I encourage every security leader to take risk management university level, whatever. There are lots of courses out there, but uh, it's, it's a critical skill and it's, it's a way to communicate with the business community that will get their attention, hopefully. Yeah. I, I love it. I think that's a great high point to, to close on. And so, so again, uh, thank you all for joining us on today's episode of Risk and Reels. Our guest today has been my friend, Steve McGowan. I think he, Steve gave some great tips and some great things to think about. Um, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future amazing guests like Steve. So with that, I want to thank everyone for coming. Stay safe. Stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.